0: All
1: right. And welcome to the show. This upload is coming to you February 15th, 2017. You're listening to the Post Money Plan podcast, where we are all about empowerment through knowledge. In today's episode, we'll be discussing microfinance and its value to society. This episode is hosted by myself, Dallas Post, founder of the Post Money Plan. And today I have Jesse Kassler on the show with me. Welcome to the show, Jesse. Thanks, Dallas. Happy to be here.
0: So Jesse, if you could just introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Jesse Kassler and I'm the vice president of finance and administration at hope international. I've been with hope for about 12 years before that I worked in the banking sector in the Boston area. It's been a, a pleasure to be part of the hope international mission and be able to serve through that and to serve many people around the world. All right. So just in terms of the goals of this podcast, what
1: we're hoping to do is bring awareness in general to the topic of microfinance and its societal benefits when taking in a moral, if not Christian context, and then also more specifically to bring awareness to Hope International. So if you could just give us a little background on Hope.
0: Sure. So Hope International was founded in 1997, and it was really founded out of a partnership between a church here in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and a church in Ukraine. And so the way this worked is this church, like many churches, was sending stuff and people, right? So they sent a shipping container of supplies over to Ukraine, and they would wait and hear back and then send another one. And a group of people from this church in Lancaster went over to Ukraine to see how's it going, right? And our founder, Jeff Rutt, was part of that group. And so Jeff and the others went to visit this church in Ukraine and the pastor was a very smart guy. He said, thank you for sending these shipments. But in some ways I can just see my people becoming more dependent on these shipments. Right. And, and by the way, it also puts me in an awkward position as the pastor. I have to decide who gets what and there's not enough for everybody and certain people don't get it. And it just puts me in an awkward position. And so he said, isn't there a way we can help my people help themselves? And so Jeff and the group from the U.S., I do that's a good idea and This is part of the story that doesn't often get told, but I think it's really instructive. The first part they noticed was actually is a lot of opportunity here for processing sunflower seed oil. Notice there's a lot of sunflowers grown in Ukraine. And they used a lot of sunflower oil, but they were importing all of it from outside the country. Well, here's a natural business idea, right? Right. So they wrote a business plan, bought a sunflower seed processing machine, you know, handed it to the pastor. Here, just follow this plan. It'll be great. You can hire people from the congregation It will provide income for the church. This would be great. You just follow this and you know everything will be good. So they get on the plane and go back to the United States, right? They come back a year later to check on the project. And the machine's sitting in the corner with cobwebs on it. Nobody had touched <laughs> it, right? <laughs> well, what happened here? Why did this go wrong? And a couple of things. One, nobody had any buy into this locally, right? right. I-, I like to try to reverse the situation. So imagine a group of Chinese businessmen come to New York, right? And they're right. here for a week and they figure out this new thing that's going to change everything. Here, just follow this business plan. It's in Mandarin, by the way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Probably a pretty limited chance of success, right? So nobody yeah. locally had buy into this. The other piece was, it turned out that they learned there were some good reasons why this stuff was being imported from outside of the country, processed outside the country and then imported back in. Packaging restrictions in Ukraine and some other issues that made it difficult to process it locally. Right. And so they said, well, OK. And then they started to look around. and they, they noticed most of these people in this church already have some kind of small business going. What if we could get behind what they're already doing, which is already working for them and help that to grow? And so that's what they started to do. At the same time, Jeff had heard about microfinance. So they said, let's try this. And so they made their first 12 loans in Ukraine. And everybody said, you know, you can call that money a loan if you want to, but you can kiss that money goodbye. (laughs) And what year was this? 1997. All right. Okay. So yeah, yeah. They said, you can kiss this money goodbye because nobody's repaying these loans. But sure enough, all 12 repaid. And so they made 12 more. And so now there are branches all over the country and several million dollars in loans outstanding all across Ukraine. And so we had this success in the Ukraine program, and it was really around 2003, 2004 that the board said, hey, this has been going very well in Ukraine. How can we turn this into an international network of Christ-centered microfinance programs? And so at that point was really when they hired Peter Greer, who's our CEO, really with the mandate of saying, turn this into an international network of programs. And so at that point, I, I started shortly after that, we really started to add partner programs to the network and start more of our own. And so now Open International is a network of programs in 16 countries serving over 900,000 clients. Some of those are through partnerships we have with like-minded organizations that were existing indigenously in the local country and we came alongside. Some of those are ones we started from scratch and own and operate ourselves. So we're really a network together striving towards this common mission of investing in the dreams of families in the world's underserved communities as we proclaim and live the gospel. All right.
1: So I understand that Hope International has two main programs where you do microfinance activities, but then you also do savings and credit association services.
0: Could you just explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I like to think about these in terms of things we know. So microfinance, when you think of microfinance, you really should think a bank. There's branches, tellers, cashiers, loan officers, HR people, you know, accountants. It's a bank. It just happens to be customized for those living in material poverty. And so it's a very institutional approach. When we start a microfinance program in a country, we're registering a financial entity with the central bank and with the government typically. And so that entity is typically allowed to take on savings, make loans, all those kinds of things. Savings and credit associations are a little bit different. So here it's a little bit more grassroots. And so in this case, it's more like a small credit union, you know, maybe 10 or 20 people getting together in a group to save their own money into a pool of capital that then they decide how to make loans to or use as a group business, et cetera. So on the Savings and Credit Association side, we're partnering with church denominations, so Anglicans in Rwanda and the Pentecostals and the Brethren and the Nazarenes and the Baptists and just about everybody, where we will partner with that denomination and train local pastors, catechists, maybe development workers or volunteers in the local church on how to organize these groups and encourage people to save their money. And so these people go out in their communities and help form these groups, 10 or 20 people to get together and decide how much they're going to save on a weekly or monthly basis and how they're going to use those funds. And it just gives them a safe place to save their money and be able to get access to larger lump sums. And so that is just a little bit different model. We love both of these models. They both have maybe strengths and weaknesses, but we do both of these models and we try to be razor focused on these two things. It's not that orphanages are not important or clean water. That stuff is all great. It's just maybe it's commentary on us, but we find it hard enough to do two things with excellence. So we really try to be focused on just those things and try to do them well. All right. So that's just kind of an example. How did Hope get started? And why does microfinance work? It's kind of getting behind what people are already doing. They already have buy-in to, they already know what works locally. How do we get behind and support them and give them access to opportunity that you and I have, have had and enjoyed right. financial uh, opportunity and access to help them grow that.
1: So that gives us a little feel for where Hope International came from. So then in terms of microfinance in general, could you give us a little feel for how it works?
0: Sure. So, first of all, the word microfinance is a big thing. There's a lot of stuff under that umbrella. And so, when you talk about people getting together and pooling their capital in some way, well, that's as old as money, right? I mean, we didn't invent that, that's for sure. But really, the microfinance industry is typically recognized as starting in the 70s with Muhammad Yunus and the Grammy Bank, and there were some others doing similar kinds of activity, but really trying to take what people had been doing maybe informally for a long time And saying, how do we bring some structure on this? How do we encourage this and foster this sector, bring some system to some of this? And so that was when some of the first microfinance banks that were really trying to scale really began in the 70s and 80s. And then, of course, in the 2000s, I started Hope International 2004. I remember speaking to groups and I would ask, how many of you have heard of microfinance? And you know, maybe one or two hands would go up. But then the UN declared the year of microcredit in the mid-2000s. And then Muhammad Yunus won the Nobel Prize and Kiva was on Oprah and all this stuff. And right. people started to know about microfinance. What is this thing? And Of course, there's all these articles in The Economist and The Wall Street Journal and Business Week about how great microfinance is. And so people started to get more awareness about this. And so the industry really started to grow a lot at that point.
1: But it's funny because my own personal experience was in undergrad, I went to a, a conference at Wharton that was, I guess, just a general microfinance awareness conference. There's something to that extent. And when I first heard about it, I actually was repulsed uh-huh. because I thought, felt it came across as loan sharking yes. to me. So then after I heard a little bit more about it, thought it really depends on the context in which it's taken mm. and how it's administered. Yeah in whether it comes across as good or bad.
0: Yeah, I think it really uh, is a neutral thing, just like banking in general, right? That can be used well and to help society thrive, or it can be used in a way that doesn't help society thrive, right? And even on an individual level, individual clients can misuse our credit cards. We can misuse loans from the bank and get ourselves in more trouble, or it can be something that really helps us to thrive. So, It's an access to an opportunity and people can use that in different ways. Our job is to try to structure it in a way that helps maximize the positive and minimize the potential risks. So I think you're, you're right to ask about more detail about how exactly you're doing microfinance. It's not enough to just say, oh, it's microfinance. It's good. Well, there's some out there that are doing it in a way that's not healthy and good.
1: Right. Which is actually why we wanted to showcase Hope International, but we'll get into that in a minute. So then could you give us a feel for the industry standard and then Hope International in terms of loan sizes?
0: Yes. So in general, typically anywhere from as low as maybe $100 up to five dollars or $10,000 would typically be considered microfinance. The closer you get to 10000 it starts to become what we call SME, small, medium enterprise loans. Okay. So you're kind of leaving the micro side at that point. But there's still a lot of need and a lot of lack of access to a full suite of uh, financial opportunities at that level in many countries. And so there's uh, some small, medium enterprise loans that are often done in microfinance networks as well. So for us, we tend towards the lower side. So our loans maybe in a place like Rwanda might start around $100. And in our microfinance program might go up to a few thousand and uh, we might have some small medium enterprise loans that are on top of that. Usually for clients who have come up and have grown with their microfinance loans and access and are ready for the next level.
1: Okay. So the niche market that microfinance occupies exists because banks have decided that the administrative cost associated with serving clients that are dealing with loans of
0: these amounts is not worth the overhead. Typically. So if you read Muhammad Yunus's book, Banker to the Poor, he tells a lot about his story of starting Grameen Bank. And I think, again, like the story I told about Hope's founding, it's very instructive of why is this needed? And the first thing he tried to do was not start a microfinance bank. He tried to connect clients to traditional banking, and they just weren't interested because it might cost them $50 to process the paperwork for their whole system and process. The whole loan's only $50, right? right? right. So it's just not worth it to them typically. Plus, they don't have typical things that are required for banking, right? Like, for example, being literate, be able to read the documents, being able to sign your name, being able to have collateral, something that's physically registered as collateral that you can put up against the loan. Like, they don't have those kind of things, right? So microfinance tried to say, well, how can we customize this system that takes into account what they do have? And one of the things they do have is robust social networks. For one thing,
1: we're talking usually like third world countries. Yes. This is not like suburban USA.
0: Right. So first of all, no credit score. First thing your bank's going to do when you apply for loans, check free credit bureaus, right? right? It doesn't exist right. in most of the places right. where we work. So that's one thing. Second of all, there's a whole invisible system. Hernando de Soto and, and the Ministry of Capital, right, is a big part of this, talking about the invisible system that we take for granted about clear title and transfers and all that kind of thing that means the bank can rely on the property title for your house to be able to make a mortgage, right? Right, right. Well, if you don't have some of those same systems in a lot of places where we work, it's really hard to, even if you have assets, they're not in a form that can be collateralized, right? right? If you don't have clear title to that land, the bank can't rely on that.
1: And then for the bank, if they can't secure some kind of collateral, that puts a lot more risk on them in, in making
0: a loan. Exactly. No credit score. I don't know if you default on your last five loans, right? I can't collateralize anything from you. All those things drive price up, right? Right. Because there's a lot more risk. Or the, the interest on a loan. Exactly. Required. And so what microfinance tried to do is say, well, what do they have? And they have robust social networks. That's a big part of it. So they know. I know Dallas. I grew up with Dallas, right? And I know he's going to use the money well. I'm willing to cross-guarantee his loan, right? Sam, now I don't know about him. I'm not sure. You know, we know each other, right? They know each other. So there's already kind of a risk screening that happens because the group is forming itself and deciding who they want to have participate in the group. Another thing is these loans are often made in groups, right? So instead of going out to 50 individual clients, right, you might go to two groups of 25. And so the loan officer can spend less time going to one group of 25 and make 25 loans all at once instead of trying to individually deal with, again, these very small amounts. You got to kind of work them together so that it becomes more efficient. So there there are things that microfinance did to try to make the system more efficient and bring down that risk and ultimately bring down the cost. So it's sort of somewhere in between what a formal bank might do and what the loan sharks would do, right? Like the loan sharks can deal individually and they have zero risk mitigation. And so the cost is really, really high for them. Right. But for us, we can try to keep the cost as low as possible and cover as much of the risk as possible through this group methodology. It's not on, like you go to your bank when you're you know, 19 and you want your first car loan, right? The bank looks at you and they check those three credit bureaus and there's nothing right. for Dallas Post, right? So they say, well, I don't know if we can loan to dallas but then you bring maybe mom or dad right and they co-sign for you i know mom and dad i can rely on them okay i can make the loan it's the same kind of principle so then
1: in some of the research that i've done in the current microfinance activity taking place in the world i understand that there's over 1600 microfinance institutions worldwide and that the industry has over 90 billion dollars worth of loans outstanding as of 2014 so it's not just a drop in the bucket yes And then in terms of average interest rates, it varies widely across countries, as Mm -hmm. as you've said. But from the research that I found, that interest rates can average around 30% plus, which is significantly lower than loan sharks, which are on the order of 100% plus on an annualized basis.
0: Yeah, that's a, you know, it's a good question. We could spend a few hours just talking about pricing and microfinance. And uh, it's a fairly complicated question, because you have to look at the individual context in which that price fits, right? right. So. If we were to ask a normal American, a typical American, what do you think a a normal rate for a loan would be? You know, you might say, I don't know, 6%, 8%, 5%, something like that, right? Right. Because that's what we see on billboards here, right? right? Okay, that's about an APR I would probably pay on a loan, something like that. Which, even
1: in an American context, changes drastically. If you think back, like I would talk to my grandma back 10 years ago, and she would say, Why would you put your money in the stock market or here when you could put it in a CD and get 17%?
0: Right. Because she was thinking back from 1980, right,
1: when that's what the environment was.
0: Well, that's the thing. In the US, it's been a very stable economic environment for a long time now. And so it's hard to even imagine those kind of rates here. But the prime interest rate in 1980 in the U.S. was over 20%, right? Yeah. So if your mortgage was 20 plus, that was what was on the billboard, right. right? So now imagine you're transferring this to a context where inflation is regularly 25 or 30%, <laughs> right? The interest rate has to be at least that just to, just to break even, right, yeah. on the depreciation of the currency you're holding. So it's hard to compare interest rates between countries, not even the U.S., just the Philippines to Mexico or Bolivia to Uganda, You can't really compare those apples to apples. You've got to compare them to other rates within the country. And so that's what's really going to determine, like, is this an appropriate rate or not? And the rates where we're working, our rates are very competitive with the traditional banks, even, that are in those countries. So we're not even anywhere close to what the loan sharks are, are charging. We're closer to what the traditional banking system is charging. Now, those rates might be very different than what's in the U.S., but they are appropriate for that local context. right. And then just
1: to be more specific about what those determinants of the interest rates are, you have the cost of the money to the microfinance institution, so how much it costs them to get access to money, the probability of default of the borrowers, and then microfinance institutions seek to try to reduce those defaults as much as possible. And then the administration of the loan itself by the microfinance
0: institution. That's right. I think sometimes there's a perception from the U.S. that, well, everything's really cheap in those countries. Well, not always, you know, get a vehicle in Africa, for example, very expensive. The roads are often terrible, so maintenance on those vehicles are hard. Cost of rent for places can actually be very high in Africa, some of the highest places in the world are in Africa. And so it's not always cheap and you're doing loans that are very small. So in percentage terms,
1: the overhead can be very high. Like the example you gave, a $50 loan and the cost to process that in percentage terms is high.
0: Even if your interest rate is 100%, you're still only making $50, right? And right. so it's yeah. hard to administer a loan for a whole loan cycle for that amount of money. So it's very difficult. I mean, this is the reason we're a nonprofit. <laughs> if we were for profit, we wouldn't be in any of these markets, which is why there's a need for nonprofit-based microfinance.
1: And so my understanding is that the the biggest markets in general for microfinance are Africa and South and Latin America and Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. But how about
0: Hope International? So we've got some programs in Eastern Europe, Asia, Africa and the Caribbean. Most of our stuff is in Africa, but then also Eastern Europe and Asia, we've got a a decent presence as, as well. So then on a more
1: holistic level, how would you describe the purpose of microfinance and especially from
0: Hope's perspective? Yeah. So I think the purpose in general is about expanding financial access to those living in material poverty. You and I probably have had access to a bank account, a safe place to save our money, loans for things like college, or maybe our parents bought a house with a mortgage, or maybe they had a small business that would grow from access to capital from the bank. And we almost take these kind of things for granted. Like, oh, isn't this in the Bill of Rights? Doesn't everybody have access to it? Well, the reality is most of the world's poor does not have access to a full suite of financial services. And you think about how different your life would be, maybe not in a one-week period, but if you look back over your life, you think, gosh, if I didn't have a safe place to literally just save money, if I hadn't been able to finance some of my college education... If my parents hadn't had a house to live in because they didn't have a mortgage, wow, that, my life would be really different. And again, we kind of take that for granted, but how can we give that same access to those same opportunities to more of the world's population? I think it's really the main purpose of microfinance. And really one of the purposes of the financial system in general is taking small amounts of money over time and turning them into useful lump sums, right? And that's essentially what a mortgage is. That's essentially what any kind of loan is, right? You can do something different with X amount all at once than you can with a small amount over time. And so how do we give access to people living in poverty might always have a dollar or two dollars at any given time, but never had a hundred dollars all at once in their lives. Right. And you can do something different with a hundred dollars. You can buy that calf or you can buy that sewing machine or you can start that business and get something started. But it's hard to do that with a dollar at a time over a year. Right, And so really help them do what we all enjoy. So with Hope International, we are then doing that, but doing that in a way way that combines our faith into that as well. And proclaiming and living the gospel is part of that as well. And that affects everything we do. It affects how we interact with our clients, how we think about their value proposition, not just ours. Traditional for-profit business would say, hey, you maximize profit and you do that until Walmart moves in next door and you have to reduce the profit to be competitive. For us, we want to be pushing on that as much as possible because the clients are our main focus, right? And their value. And so we want to be trying to push to see how can we do that? That's that's informed by our faith. The way we even do the group product and the curriculum and methodology, a lot of that is biblically-based business principles that we're trying to communicate. So it really is ingrained into everything that we do.
1: Okay. And so when it comes to lending to the poor or people who typically don't have access to capital, there comes that caveat where like, it's how you're using that money. Mm-hmm. And there's consumption spending and there's investment spending. And one of the things that I really want to emphasize with the post-money plan is to have people focused on investment-based spending. Mm-hmm. And so from my perspective, when it comes to microfinance, it's really important to make sure that it's going to be investment related spending, because in order to benefit from a loan, which you're paying interest on, you have to have an investment that makes gain beyond
0: that to cover that cost in the first place. Yeah, exactly. So the vast majority of what Hope International does, especially on the lending side, is microenterprise development. So it's business loans. There are some products like some housing improvement loans or some other things like that, but those are a smaller piece of the portfolio. The vast majority is all about setting up that greenhouse or expanding that business or providing a new line of products to your, your business. So it's mostly business expansion types of loans. Now, we also offer savings products. People, of course, can save for whatever they want to, but uh, on the lending side, uh, it's the vast majority of that is micro enterprise development. And just what you said about having access to an opportunity that's going to help you grow despite the interest rate. Maybe I can give an example. Sometimes I feel like you can talk in the big picture and it's hard to get, what does this actually look like in practice? So let me give you an example. I was in uh, Wanamint, Haiti. So just over the Dominican Republic border, big market town there. And I was, you know, if you've ever been to the developing world, you know that there's a thousand of these many small wooden stands that are selling everything. It's like Walmart, right? You can buy anything there. And so we didn't have a branch there at the time, but I went up to talk to one of the clients and I was asking her about her business. How does this work? And she had a small stand selling clothing. And she said, well, what I do is I go into a wholesaler in the middle of town and I get these clothes on wholesale and I bring them out here and sell them retail for a profit. Okay. Great. Do you buy those clothes on credit or do you pay cash up front? Oh, I buy them on credit. Okay. What's the interest rate on that? Oh, there's no interest rate. Hmm. Okay. Let me dig into that a little bit further. So I said, well, for example, and I held up a shirt. I said a shirt like this, you get it from the wholesaler, bring it out here, sell it and bring the money back to the wholesaler. On average, how much are you bringing back for this shirt? Uh, about 150 good, about $3 at the time. And I said, okay, well, what if you had cash up front to buy the shirt? And this is she's a savvy business lady. She knows the answers to these questions. What if you had cash up front to buy it from the wholesaler? How much would you have to give? About a hundred good, two dollars. Aha! There is an interest rate, (laughs) right? So to close out that cycle, I say, and on average, how long does that process take from the time you get the shirt at the wholesaler, bring it out here, sell it, and bring the money back? How long does that take on average? She said about a week. So she's paying fifty percent interest for one week, right? Yeah. Two dollars compared to three dollars. One dollar difference, fifty percent one week. Yeah. right? This is very common in the developing world. Why? Why is that so common? My goodness, those are terrible loan terms because that lady has no power in the transaction. She goes to that wholesaler and that wholesaler says, here are the terms. And if you don't want them, there's a whole line of ladies behind you who want it. She has nothing to bargain with. And by the way, from the wholesaler's perspective, he doesn't know if he's ever going to see this lady again. right? right. Like She has nothing, <laughs> no collateral nothing. So his risk is very high. right? So again, it drives up the price. Now, if we give her a loan or access to a safe place to save her money and she can save up that lump sum over time, now she comes that wholesaler, she has cash. Now that starts to give her a little bit of power in the relationship. Right now, she says to the wholesaler, hey, if you don't want this cash, I'll go to the next wholesaler. That changes. That that can dramatically change the terms that she's able to access in her relationship with that business, that, that supplier. And so for her, just getting access to that capital, that safe place to save my money or a safe place to get a loan can change dramatically her bottom line. That's where so much of her profit was going. Now she's able to pay back that loan, pay it back with interest. No problem. I just need access to the capital. So in the end,
1: basically, it's giving access to the poor and the less privileged, especially in third world countries, to then access startup capital or money that can get them going. And it bridges income inequality instead of
0: trying to pull down the rich is trying to lift up the poor. And give them access to the same tools and opportunities that the rich have.
1: Yeah. Okay, so that story that you just gave, I think, is a pretty good example of how there can be a positive impact, but could you give a little bit more in terms of the societal impacts of microfinance?
0: Yeah, so a couple of things. One, and and again, this is because we're a faith-based Christian nonprofit, it drives other things that we wouldn't necessarily have to do. And if we were just purely profit-driven, we wouldn't do most of these things. But because we're about the client and creating value for them, which is motivated and formed by our faith. We have other things. So in our network, there will be things like free health screenings or some death benefit insurance or literacy training or other types of things that we'll provide alongside to help those clients to grow and develop in in different ways. Again, we're motivated to do that by our faith and by having a nonprofit mission that maybe wouldn't be the first priority of a for-profit institution. And let me give you one other example, like the lady in Wanameth, just to, again, give you some of the understanding of why this is valuable for those living in material poverty. So I, I was in the Dominican Republic and again, talking with a client there, I love to ask them about their business and how did you use the loan and how does this work for you? And this lady had a small kitchenware's business. And so she lived out in a village and she would take a taxi ride once a week to the main city in the region and buy pots and pans and utensils and then bring them out to her village and sell them door to door. And she said, this works great. The only problem is about half of my profit goes to that taxi ride every week, right? Uh, really? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that if she had access to a loan, she could buy enough stuff for the whole month, cut out three taxi rides, right? Yeah. That's where half of her profit is going. What did that just do to her bottom line? She just went through the roof. And so just basic things like this. And they know, they know those opportunities. They just don't have access to capital. You might say, well, why don't they get a bank loan? Well, as we've already discussed, they're probably not eligible for that. Why don't they borrow money from a family member? Well, if they have this business, they probably have 10 family members asking them for money. And so it's very difficult to accumulate capital in any kind of meaningful way in the developing world often. Even to have a safe place to save your money is hugely valuable. I Uh, think we
1: take that for granted a lot in the U.S.
0: Absolutely. In in Africa, parts of Africa, there are people who are paying 20 to 30% interest to have a safe place to save their money. Paying 20 to 30%, right?
1: So in the U.S., that would equate to us having negative 30% Exactly.
0: Imagine if every $100 you put in the bank, you got $70 back. (laughs) No one would do this, right? But that's how valuable it is to them, right? To be able to have a safe place to accumulate your capital, to pay for basic things like school fees for your children. That's a lump sum that has to come once a year. And if you don't have a safe place to save your money, that's a very big deal. And so it's worth a lot to them to have a safe place to save that money.
1: All right. And then, so just to wrap things up, let's discuss a little bit of the positives and negatives of microfinance. So could you give us a couple of the arguments for the positives of microfinance?
0: Yeah, I think the positives are clear to me, giving people access to financial services that we all enjoy and make use of every day. And especially for Hope International, doing that then with a positive witness for Jesus Christ as part of sharing the gospel with what we do, we feel like is a holistic way of helping people see the value that they have inherently because of who their creator is and how they can improve their financial situation through access to these financial services. I would like to clarify that we do not only work with Christians. We lend based on need, not creed. So you don't have to go to a certain church or know a certain pastor, or you don't get better terms. If any of those things are the case, we serve anyone. But as part of our curriculum and our programs, like I said, we'll do biblically-based business training. So we might talk about what does the Bible say about doing business ethically, for example. How do we market our products well in an ethical way? And what does scripture say about that? So we'll work our, our faith into that. And if people want to learn more about that, we'd be happy to connect them to a local church that we have a partnership with to learn more. So that's, I think, some of the good parts. When we talk about uh, some of the risks of microfinance, like I said earlier, it is an opportunity, but people can use that well or not use that well, just like here. And so part of the challenge of microfinance is doing that in a context where you don't always have a lot of information. Like I said, you can't get three credit scores to know what other loans does this person have outstanding. You can ask the client and if they tell you the truth, then you'll know. But if they don't, then they're trying to get a loan. They may not. Right. And so trying to avoid over indebtedness is a big issue, something we try to take seriously. And some of the ways we do that are again, through the group guarantee, right? People probably know, I know that person's part of three other groups. Like maybe we don't want them part of this group. Loan officer may be going and verifying that business and how are you going to use the money, right? So the things we're trying to do to, to compensate for that, but it's difficult in these contexts. And some people do take on more than they can handle. We love to encourage savings as well. Like, I was just going to add there. I don't know if we touched on the default rate for HOPE's loans. Yeah. yeah. So our write-off rate is about 2% per year. And so most of the loans that we make are getting repaid.
1: Because a lot of skeptics to microfinance would say, well, how are you going to get the loans back that money's lost? These people aren't going to pay it back. Right. But in practice, and what you're saying, hope is observed empirically, is that administered in a conscientious way, the loans actually do get paid back.
0: Yeah. And I think a big part of that is the group guarantee part of it, the uh, healthy social pressure that comes with that. I think part of it is that people know this is a limited opportunity. I've never had someone give me this kind of opportunity before, and I want to perform well on this so I can continue to access bigger and better financial products. And so there's also a lot of impetus to make sure that I use this money well, that I run this business well, and I can repay these loans and I can get access to more later if I need it.
1: Kind of what you already mentioned, but in, in my mind, microfinance can be very good if it's providing that access to capital so that people can get off the ground to make investments and, and build themselves up. But if they were, on the other hand, taking the loans to then pay off other loans mm-hmm. or just to do American style consumption, yep. that would be very problematic.
0: Yep and occasionally that happens we all can make those kind of mistakes and misuse the funds that are given to us again we try to control for that with the loan officer knowing those clients and meeting with them and seeing their place of business with the group guarantee that's happening and the people knowing each other and you said you were going to use that money for a new refrigerator unit that you were going to add a product line to your shop. And I'm in your group and I see you never put that in. That's going to be a problem, right? And so you kind of got this healthy social group going on that helps keep each other accountable for that. And another criticism
1: that people have is the high interest rates. But as we've already clarified, for one, it varies per country. But then, two, The rates loan sharks might be charging, like in that example where there was like 50% over a one-week period, these are actually much more attractive and healthy
0: rates. I'll just say one thing about that. We've done several surveys of our clients and asked them to rank how important certain factors of the loan process are to them. Guess which was always the lowest of importance to them? Interest rate. Interest rate. I want to know I can get the money quickly. I want to know how courteous the loan officer is. You know, There's lots of things that they put ahead of that because like I've said in some of those examples, the opportunities are so great that if they can just get access to the capital, they can make money on it compared to their current situation. But it's these other factors that are more important to them. Now as a Christian nonprofit, we're still trying to drive down the price as low as possible and increase the value for them as much as possible but it's more important to us and the West than it is to the clients that we serve typically according to our surveys.
1: Okay, then. Well, that pretty much wraps up the things that I wanted to cover. I really want to thank you for coming on the show, Jesse. Great. Thank you, Dallas. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And you can catch us next time on another episode of the Post Money Plan Podcast.